0: Well, Church, over the uh, past two weeks, if you've been following the news at all, you will know that the whole world has been captivated by one main news story. The world has been captivated these past two weeks by the death of a queen, uh, our queen, Queen Elizabeth II, the longest reigning monarch in the history of England, that uh, it was almost uh, 71 years on the British throne for, for Queen Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Now two weeks ago in our introductory sermon here to the book of 1st and 2nd Kings, I I spoke a bit about the legacy of another one of England's past uh, monarchs, the legacy of King John. He was one of the most uh, hated, one of the worst kings in England's history, but uh, unlike uh, King John, Queen Elizabeth II will probably go down in the history books as one of England's most beloved rulers. She was, uh, in many ways, a good and godly queen. For that, we can give thanks to God, and we give thanks even as we now watch carefully and as we wonder how far the apple has fallen from the tree. And so, we members of the Commonwealth, we citizens of Canada, now have a new king, King Charles III. The question of royal succession is now settled. But uh, if you've been around for a while, you'll you'll also know that there was a time when there was some speculation about this, about who would be Elizabeth's successor, whether or not Prince Charles would be the next monarch to sit on England's throne. We know that um, Elizabeth, I guess it would be her uncle, Edward, abdicated the throne due to a divorce. There was speculation whether Charles is very... Uh, public and scandalous divorce from Diana would disqualify him from the role or uh, even whether whether Charles would voluntarily abdicate and allow his son William to reign in his stead. Well now we know the answer to the question. The uh, succession has been determined. Charles is our king. And given the world's captivation with royalty and kingship over these past 2 weeks, I find it interesting in uh, God's providence, that we find ourselves here in First Kings chapter one. That wasn't uh, by design, by the way. I, I'm not uh, a prophet or the son of a prophet, but uh, it's interesting, isn't it, uh, that we find ourselves in First Kings one this morning? This is a chapter in the Bible describing a crucial political transition in the history of ancient Israel. And uh, really, if you want to put a heading above this chapter that captures the main message, it's really a question. The heading over this chapter is, who will be king? Who will be king? And that's the title of our sermon this morning. So if you have a copy of God's Word with you, you can open it up with me. Please turn to 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1. We're going to read the whole chapter this morning. I remind you as I read that this is God's inspired and inerrant word. 1 Kings 1. Now King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel. They found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him. But the king knew her not. Now Adonijah the son of Haggith exalted himself, saying, I will be king and he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. His father had not, never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zariah, and with Abiathar, the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei and Ray and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen and fattened cat- cattle by the serpent stone which is beside Enrogo. He invited all his brothers, the king's son and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaiah or the mighty men or Solomon his brother. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? That David our lord doesn't know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me and shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then while you're still speaking with the king, I also will come in after and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? And she said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me. He shall sit on my throne. And now behold, Adonijah's king. Although you, my lord the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, sheep in abundance. He has invited all the sons of the king. Abiathar the priest, Joab the commander of the army, but Solomon, your servant, he has not invited. And now, my lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my lord the king sleeps with his fathers that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And they told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me and shall sit on my throne? For he has gone down this day and sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's son, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. Behold, they are eating and drinking before him, and saying, Long live King Adonijah! But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been brought about by my lord the king? Have you not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord the king after him? Then king David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came to the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the lord lives who has redeemed my soul out of every adversary, as I swore to you by the lord the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my lord, King David, live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you servants of your lord and have Solomon my son ride on my own mule. Bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. Shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. I've appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God, my Lord, the king, say so. And as the Lord has been with my Lord, the king, even may he be with Solomon. Make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule. They brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. Adonijah and all the guests who were with them heard it as they finished feasting. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, what does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, the priest came and Adonijah said, come in for you are a worthy man, bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king sent with them Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites, and the Pelethites. They made him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, they've anointed him king at Gihon. And they've gone up from there rejoicing so that the city's in an uproar. This is the noise you've heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours, and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. And it was told Solomon, behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon. Behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first, he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, if he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent. they brought him down from the altar and he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, as we um, launch into the actual text of 1 Kings this morning, as we trace the narrative in this opening chapter, as we seek to uh, understand the relevance of these ancient words for the church in this time and generation, we are going to chart the following course. First of all, we're going to see in the first four verses the picture of an aging king. Secondly, verses 5 to 10, the picture of an ambitious son. Thirdly, verses 11 to 27, the picture of an alarmed mother. And then finally, verses 28 to 53, the picture of an anointed successor. We've got an aging king, we've got an ambitious son, we've got an alarmed mother, and we've got an anointed successor. And that's where we're heading this morning with God's help. Now, the book of kings first and second kings and by the way first and second kings was originally one book the reason why it's uh first and second is because the whole of it would not fit on a single scroll and so when you see first second samuel first and second kings it is not two different books it's it's one book that was split into two and and recorded on on two scrolls this is originally meant to be one book and uh, in fact, it is, it is part of a larger section of the Old Testament that many scholars call it the Deuteron- Deuteronomic history. The Deuteronomic history, the Jews call it the former prophets. These are the historical books of the Old Testament. They tell us Israel's history from the time of conquest, during the time of Joshua, all the way to the time of exile. And these former prophets, they include the books of Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. Those are the former prophets, the Deuteronomic history. And so when we launch into a study on the book of Kings, as we are doing here at Rosedale, we're really launching into the middle of this history. And the assumption here is that those of us who are reading the book of Kings, we already know the history that's come before. That we know something about this history, especially the part of the history telling us about King David and David's uh, 40-year reign over Israel. Now, I think uh, here at Rosedale, probably most of us are familiar with the story of David's life, and uh, it would be beneficial, even if we're not, I think to get a refresher on some of this and and to read the first part of the story. And so I want to encourage you, over the next uh, week or two weeks, uh, start reading through the books of First and Second Samuel. Uh, get up to speed so that you you know uh, the whole story. That you you're, you're familiar with the history leading up to the Book of Kings. These are uh, are some of my favorite parts of the Bible. I love First and Second Samuel. I love First and Second Kings. These were all, have always been some of my favorite uh, books in the Bible. They're they're exciting and uh, they're a, they're a joy and a pleasure to read. The book of 1st Samuel is focused primarily on the reign of King Saul. King Saul was Israel's first king. He is a man who started off well but who turned aside from the righteous path and through his contempt for God's law had the kingdom taken from him. 1st Samuel begins with the transition of power from judges to kings. It ends with the death of Saul and the death of his son Jonathan. This is Really, 1 Samuel, it is the depressing failure of Israel's first experiment with monarchy. It didn't go very well. Their first uh, kick at the can, so to speak, with a new king, it did not go very well. The book of 2 Samuel, then, is a part of God's Word telling us about the reign of David. And it recounts all of the amazing things that David did through the power and grace of God. Now, King David, you know, uh, didn't start off as king. He started off as a lowly shepherd boy out in the field. He was the runt of the litter. He was the youngest uh, son in the family. And it was uh, as a shepherd out in the field that David honed his skills, both as a musician and as a warrior. Here's a a warrior poet. Uh, He is a very skilled musician Very skilled uh, poet, and he is also a very skilled warrior. He's out in the field; he's slinging stones to protect the sheep from the lion and the bear, and uh, he's not afraid to go up against predators to to protect the sheep. When God's favor is removed from Saul, and it, it comes time for Samuel to anoint the successor to indicate God's choice for the nation, Samuel at first doesn't pay any attention to David. In fact, David's own father doesn't pay any attention to him he's totally overlooked i mean he is he is the runt but as things turned out it was the red-haired runt that god wanted david was the man that god had chosen to be king and and very early on we see david's heroism he he's a wonderful character in the bible he's a heroic figure in the bible he has this this heroism he has this incredible zeal for god love the story of david and goliath you know most people even if they don't go to church know something about the story of of david and goliath and just think of david's heroism here's this this little runt and king saul and the whole army of israel they're a bunch of cowards they won't stand up for the glory of god just a bunch of of cowards hiding trembling and david finds this totally unacceptable he says, How is it that our God is being dishonored by this uncircumcised Philistine? Meanwhile, all of our leaders are, are just a bunch of cowards. And David rises to the occasion with God's help. He he kills that giant with a stone and sling, and then he cuts off his head. You know, there's a reason why young boys like these Old Testament stories, you know? There's some blood in blood and guts in the Bible. And uh, so it's David's stunning victory over Goliath that first brings him to the public eye. And, and this provokes the jealousy and the murderous insecurity of King Saul. Although Saul had brought David into his own family, he, he was on the payroll as a court musician. Saul's goal from this point forward is to put his rival and uh, also his son-in-law, David was married to Saul's daughter, uh, Michael, And Saul's goal is to put his son-in-law to death. And so David becomes a fugitive in Israel. He is running away, evading Saul's army. He gathers around him this ragtag band of rebels. And what does David do? He continues right on. He's plundering. He's pillaging God's enemies. He's doing it with great skill, deception even, and, and intrigue. And two times in his exile, David has the opportunity to take Saul's head. He has the opportunity, not once, but twice, to kill his murderous rival. And on both occasions, David holds back his sword. Why? Because David recognizes that Saul is the anointed of God and that Saul is still governing by consent of the people. Remember what we said last time about kingship? They govern by God's choice, but ultimately by consent of the people this is government by consent but when god's judgment finally falls upon saul he dies in battle david becomes the king and for the next 40 years david reigns over israel he is seven years reigning in the city of hebron over the tribe of judah and then he is 33 years reigning over all the other tribes one of david's major accomplishments was to capture jerusalem to make Jerusalem the capital city. It was not always the capital city of Israel. It was not always the uh, the site of worship. David, following uh, Joshua's lead, lead continues the conquest of Canaan. He He captures Jerusalem, establishes it as the new capital city. This is a city on a hill. Quite literally, Jerusalem is a city on a hill with valleys on both sides. And if you ever get a chance to go to Jerusalem... You'll, you'll assume when you get there that the original city is within uh, the walls, but that's not the case. The original city is actually in ruins outside of the walls, and you can go on uh, a tour to see the old city of David, where his palace once was, and, uh, and it's no longer surrounded by, by the walls. The, mo- the modern walls of Jerusalem were built by the Ottomans in the Middle, in the middle Ages. But it was David who had this vision. For Jerusalem, for Zion, a city on a hill. It was David who had the vision to replace the tabernacle with the temple. This permanent worship complex, this this pilgrimage site in Jerusalem that would sit on the very highest part of the city. He never got to build God's house in Jerusalem, but that was his desire. That was his vision. He was a man who wanted to honor the Lord. And instead of David building a house for God, it was God who built a house for David. And Andrew read that text earlier on, very important, 2 Samuel 7, where David says, God, I want to build you a house. And where God says, no, David, you got it backwards, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a house. This is a Davidic covenant, God's promise to David that he would establish his dynasty forever. That it would be a dynastic covenant monarchy in israel and that would be only the members of david's family who would rightfully rule and reign over the people the two books of first and second samuel testify of david's greatness the way he showed himself to be a man after god's own heart but these books also reveal the ugly side of david's heart in particular second samuel we learn about David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba his evil attempt to cover over his sin by murdering Bathsheba's husband who also happened to be one of his mighty men a loyal friend he murders him so David is far from perfect at times David sins greatly against the Lord but unlike Saul who is always trying to justify his own sin and rebellion David never justifies his sin he always confesses it he repents of it he openly acknowledges his sin before the lord thus even after his greatest moment of failure david remains the greatest king of israel he remains a man after god's own heart a flawed man yes but a great man well that's a a short summary of david's life for those who may be less familiar with old testament history David was the greatest king in Israel. David stands at the fountainhead of a dynasty in a royal house. By the way, David's royal house continues. You know that? It didn't end with the exile, that one of David's um, uh, descendants uh, went back as a governor in, uh, after the, the time of exile. And then uh, that all leads up to the greatest Davidic king of all, the Messiah jesus sits on david's throne he is ruling and reigning right now as the true davidic king and so with that background we we turn then from the books of samuel to the book of kings and what we find here in the opening chapter of kings is a snippet a a snapshot of david in the final months of his life and reign this is an old Aging king, the end of his life. This is probably the last year of David's life, but David has one final battle to fight. There's one final battle. Look again with me at verses 1 to 4. 1 to 4. It says, Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore, his servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his, his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel. They found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful. She was of service to the king and attended him. But the king knew her not. It means, uh, last phrase, the king had no sexual relations with this woman. Now, the opening part of the text here in chapter one, it says very plainly, very bluntly, David was old. David was advanced in years, as one commentator put it, and I thought this was good. He said, David is old and cold. Old and cold. And uh, at the risk of offending uh, some of you here today, we can put a number on it. What's old? <laughs> in the biblical definition well we know that david was about 70 years old i'm sorry to inform some of you about that david was 70 years old at this point how do we know that well david began to reign at the age of 30 and his reign lasted 40 years so do the math 30 plus 40 equals 70 that brings us up to the end of david's life and as we know the book of psalms i hate to tell you this The book of Psalms gives us the expected human lifespan, which is, what, three score and and ten, right? Seventy years. This is the expected normal lifespan for a human uh, being. And so we see here in, in 1 Kings a man whose hourglass is running out of sand. And knowing what David was like in his younger years, David's strength, David's zeal, David's uh, phenomenal ability as a leader. Isn't this painful? <laughs> I mean, this chapter, it, it, it's just, it's depressing. It, it's painful to read this final descrip- description. Here's the man who killed Goliath with a, a stone and a, a sling, and, and now here he is, 70 years old. He can't even get out, up out of bed. says, not David, the mighty warrior the years have taken their toll to the point where we're told here david can't he can't even keep himself warm now uh we probably could chalk that up that david had poor circulation all right he had poor circulation his heart his circulatory system was not working very well meaning that his health was starting to fail But more distressing than the physical weakness of King David are a number of indications here of a growing spiritual weakness. And the first, I hope it's the most obvious one, of David's growing spiritual weakness is the opening paragraph, the appearance of another woman in David's life. King David, as you know, violated God's design when it came to his home and family. Instead of following God's pattern, what's God's pattern for marriage? One man plus one woman for one lifetime. This is God's pattern for marriage. One man, one woman, one lifetime. David has violated God's design for his family. Instead of following God's pattern, David follows the customs of the kings of the ancient Near East. David takes to himself a number of wives. This is called a harem. And this type of behavior would have been Totally normal in David's time. This was totally culturally normal, acceptable behavior in David's generation, but we know from the Bible this behavior is not acceptable to the Lord. This is not normal behavior when it comes to scriptures teaching on the family, and actually it violates the, the laws about kingship that we studied last time in, in Deuteronomy 17. What does it say there? It says, The king shall not acquire many wives so that his heart doesn't turn away and as we're going to see david's ungodly example at home in his own life had a profound effect on his family this sets the spiritual temperature for the rest of his family david's son who sons who by and large live in rebellion to god and not only in rebellion to god in rebellion to their own father David has a relatively small harem. Solomon takes David's example to an an absurd extreme. Um, I've been in the habit of saying 900s. Brother Andrew corrected me this week that it was more like 1,000, right? 1,000 wives and concubines. Where did Solomon learn this behavior? He learned it from Dad. He learned it from dear old dad. And so David's polygamy is not unusual for his generation, but as you read through the opening paragraph of Kings, I mean, you can't help but feel sorry for this young woman. You can't help but feel pity for this young woman named Abishag. Here's one of the most beautiful women in Israel. I mean, they they do a beauty pageant. They find the most beautiful, eligible young woman in Israel. And what's her job? <gasps> you imagine it? Your job now, Abishag, most beautiful woman in Israel, is to lie in the bed of this old man. Old, sexually impotent man. And what's her role? She's a trophy wife. Her role is to prop up David's ego and to make him feel like a man. That's her her job. You know, if David was cold at night, there are other solutions. You know, I think by this time, fire had been discovered. They can uh, stoke the, the wood stove. But no, instead, they ruined the life of this young woman, Abishag. They indulged King David in his own ungodly, lustful imagination. By the way, brothers in the Lord... Young men often struggle with lustful thoughts. Don't think that lustful thoughts disappear when you become an old, an old man. There is such a thing as a dirty old man. And uh, the thoughts of the mind need to be guarded at every point in life. David is, he is really a dirty old man in some ways. And so the first paragraph does not bode well for the state of David's spiritual health. As we're going to see in the rest of the chapter... It's not only the spiritual issue, it's also his role as the king. He's not fulfilling his responsibilities as king. David, and and the chapter makes this very plain, David is is totally out of touch. He's lying in his bed, he's totally out of touch, he has no idea what's going on in his own family, He he has no idea what's going on in the state. Can you imagine that? Like Queen Elizabeth right up to to the very end, was concerned with the affairs of the state. Here's David, the end of his life, lying in bed. He has no clue what's happening. Just totally oblivious. And so he is the king of Israel, name and office. He's no longer fulfilling his responsibilities. And he's actually created in Israel, his failure to lead at the end, has created a vacuum of authority. Nature abhors a vacuum. And uh, when there's a vacuum of leadership, it will be filled in one way or another. David has led the nation to a constitutional crisis. Who will be king? Who, who is going to succeed this man? Who's going to do the job now because he's not doing it? As we go through the book of Kings in months to come, you know, one of the themes that we are going to see over and over again in this book, I think it's one of the main themes in the book of Kings, is a reminder you can start well and finish poorly. You can start well and you can finish very poorly. Now, we see this in King David's life. We're going to see the same pattern in the lives of many kings. These are men who follow God in their former years, but they grow spiritually lazy, lazy, cowardly and indifferent in their in their elder years brethren understand this the christian life is a battle the christian life is war and it it doesn't end when you start collecting your pension check do you understand that i'm I'm talking to the seniors right now you don't retire from the spiritual battle once you start collecting canada pension you understand that? This this is a battle to the end. John Piper in his book Don't Waste Your Life, he said his worst nightmare is to grow old and to spend all of his days collecting shells on the beach. He says what a nightmare to spend the, some of the best years of my life on a beach collecting shells instead of serving the Lord God. Don't think that when you retire that the battle ends. Brothers and sisters, understand this. The battle continues right up until the time when you breathe your last breath. That's when it ends. Not 65. Till you breathe your last breath and then they put you in the pine box and they bury you six feet under. And then you wait there for the resurrection. Okay? From the beginning of life to the end of life, we are to remain sober, vigilant, Courageous Christians. We recognize, as Peter says, the adversary of the devil prowls as a roaring lion. Now, I, I still call myself a younger man. That's uh, open for debate. This December, I'm turning uh, 40, so I don't know if that's uh, what to call that, maybe middle age. But uh, I'll, until December, I'll still call myself a younger man. As a younger man, one of the things that I find most encouraging in my walk with the Lord is to see older men staying the course. Young men, do you agree? One of the things I find the most encouraging in my walk with God is to see older men who are staying the course. Faithful, vigilant, vigorous, uh, courageous to the end. I love Caleb in the Bible. I love him. Here's this young man, courageous. He goes against the, the, the ten spies. He brings back a good report. He is full of faith in the Lord. And then you see a snapshot of Caleb as an old man. And what, what's he doing? Lord, give me that mountain. I'm ready to go rush it and take it away from those Canaanites. I mean, it's just amazing. I want to be like Caleb. That's who I want to be like when I grow old. Spiritually vigilant, ready to conquer, ready to be courageous. On the flip side, I'll tell you this, there's nothing more discouraging, nothing more discouraging than seeing an older man or an older woman who becomes soft in their old age. Soft, complacent, cowardly. A few years ago, This is over 10 years ago now, but one of the most prominent evangelists in the United States, a man who is greatly used by God for the conversion of many thousands of people, appeared in an interview as an elderly man. And the great evangelist in this interview told the interviewer that he was no longer sure whether the adherents of other religions, such as Islam, would go to hell. He was no longer sure about that. And he started talking in his older years about this, this wideness in God's mercy and grace that could save individuals who are not confessing Christ as Lord and Savior. It was, it was devastating for me to watch. I mean, he was he is one of my heroes. Devastating. It stands in my own mind, this is a very serious Warning. Never, ever let your guard down. Never, ever live off the flames of the past while you quench the the fire in the present. God's call on our lives, all of us, is not just to start well, but to end well. I, I think it might even be more important to end well than to start well. To end well. And so, senior brethren, keep this in mind. Just as the eyes of the nation were upon King David and they were looking to David as an example of faithfulness to the Lord, the eyes of your younger brethren are on you. We are watching you. We are looking to you for leadership. And even more important, the eyes of God are on you. The eyes of the Lord are on you. Persevere then in the faith. Set an example of godliness, of courage. Refuse to compromise. Be faithful to the end. Live well and then die well. End well. The first four verses we get a snapshot of King David in his senior years. This is an aging king, an aging father. He is starting to coast. He is starting to stumble in his moral and spiritual life. But in the next two paragraphs we find the second snapshot of the chapter. This is a portrait of an ambitious son, an aging father, an ambitious son. There's a lot of text here. I'm not going to reread the whole chapter this morning, but this is verses 5 to 9. An ambitious son. David's declining health, his abdication of responsibility in the affairs of state creates a vacuum of leadership and into the vacuum steps David's fourth son, this man named Adonijah, and this is a very proud, a very ambitious young man. He is determined that he is going to take his dad's place on the throne. And so we read in verse five, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalts himself, saying, "I will be king. I will be king." And he prepares for himself chariots and horsemen, fifty men to run before him. Now, get a load of this. This is one reason why I'm convinced the Bible is true and that it's the word of God. It, it always tells the truth. You know that the um, Islamic Quran, which is a demonic book uh, delivered by a false demonic prophet, leaves out all of the negative things about David and about all the prophets. For, for Muslims, David is, is sinless. The prophets are, are sinless. But in the the Bible, we're told the good, the bad, and the ugly. Which book do you think is more reliable? (laughs) A book that would tell all these embarrassing stories about Israel's most prominent king or or a, a counterfeit book that removes it all and that whitewashes the whole thing. The Bible tells us the truth about David. It says that, Adonijah's father had never at any time displeased his son by asking, why have you done thus and so? One thing that really stands out when we study the life of David is the fact that his own house is a mess. David's house is a chaotic, hot mess. <laughs> and his sons are not men who are cut out, cut from the same cloth as their father. Now, now you When you read through the historical books of the Old Testament, you see this very clearly. Uh, David's firstborn, his eldest son, was a a man by the name of Amnon. Now, Amnon adopted his father's ungodly attitude towards women. And one of the most sordid stories recorded in the Bible, we read how Amnon, David's oldest son, deceives and rapes his half-sister Tamar. And then how in response to that grievous Violent sin that Amnon turns on her in hatred and blames her for what he did. Amnon committed an incestuous act. It was worthy of the death penalty. But instead of dealing justly with his wayward son, David turns a blind eye to the scandal. David pretends that nothing happened. Nothing to see. And David's failure to act justly in regard to the violation of his own daughter prompts his third son Absalom to take justice into his own hands. And and Absalom becomes a vigilante. So we learn in 2 Samuel, Absalom vindicated his sister by murdering the rapist and he puts his older brother Amnon to death. We see that this whole affair drives a a relational wedge between David and Absalom to the point where Absalom rises up in a treasonous revolution against his dad and he's actually successful for a time of driving David and his supporters into exile. And so already in his life, David has felt the sting of a treasonous, rebellious son who attempted to usurp his throne and Absalom's death in the civil war broke David's heart. It was actually, and we're going to talk more about this, it was this guy, Joab, who's mentioned here, who was the one who who killed Absalom. And now it would, would seem, David's fourth son, this son named Adonijah, he's taking a page out of his brother's playbook. He has determined to exalt himself as king. He will usurp authority God has not given. And what's even more concerning is the editorial comment there, verse 6, attributing Adonijah's rebellion to David's failure as a father. The text suggests that Adonijah had a long track record of this behavior. He was rebellious. He was proud. He was self-exalting. These were long-standing character flaws in this young man. But tragically, David never intervened. David, the mighty warrior, he he was... He was a coward when it came to his own sons. He didn't want to displease them. He didn't want to enter into conflict with his own family members. He never disciplined his sons. So David abdicates responsibility as a parent, and we see the bitter fruit of David's parental negligence in his own lives. Three sons, three of them turning out to be immoral, self-indulgent villains, and his daughter, one of his daughter, who is the victim of incest and rape at the hands of his oldest son. And sadly, this seems to be a theme that runs through much of the Old Testament. Leaders who themselves may be faithful, but who are not faithful in their home and family. We might think of this regard, in this regard of Adam, whose son Cain turns out to be the first murderer in the human race. Or of Aaron, whose two sons were put to death by the lord for their wickedness or gideon's son abimelech who murdered 70 of his own siblings or eli the high priest who allowed his wicked immoral children to continue on in their ministry as priests, or samuel who had two sons who were partial to bribes and corruption and were not fit to govern in their father's place and so this is a pattern in the old testament over and over again children not walking in the ways of the father And well, friends, it it sometimes is the case that godly, faithful parents have ungodly, unfaithful children. There is often a discernible link between the faithfulness of dad and mom and the faithfulness of the children who are raised in those homes. Now hear me on this. As, As Christian parents, can we guarantee the salvation of our children? You cannot guarantee the salvation of your children, nor are you able to govern all of the choices that your children make in their lives, especially when your children come of age and venture out on their own. But does that mean that there's nothing that we can do as parents? You know, God's sovereign over salvation, so there's nothing that we can do. Absolutely not. Here's what we can do as parents. We can be faithful as moms and dads, to put our children in the pathway of God's grace and to raise our children as the Word of God tells us to raise our children. Deuteronomy 6, God's Word ought to be front and central in the Christian home. Fathers, Proverbs says, ought to be disciplining their children, leading their children by example, taking responsibility for the influences that occupy a child's mind and heart. When we fail to discipline children as David did, we end up raising ungodly, self-indulgent brats. And if we fail to place biblical safeguards on media and music and all of the other influences that are coming into our children's hearts and and minds and ears, you think of the television, you think of uh, the internet, you think of the peers and the friends that our children hang out with, we think of their teachers... Who's responsible for the influences that enter into the home? Mom and dad, you're responsible. I'm responsible for that. We are responsible for our own decisions when it comes to child re- rearing. If we entrust, for example, Deuteronomy 6 says, who is responsible for the education of children, according to the God's Word? Caesar? No. Deuteronomy 6, it is mom and dad who bears the responsibility, the primary responsibility of educating the child. And so mom and dad, if we choose to delegate that responsibility and to entrust our children to ungodly men and women who are on mission to indoctrinate those children in the wicked ways of a depraved culture, who's responsible for that? Is it the teacher? To a degree... It's the parent. You are the one who made the choice. You are the one who entrusted your children to the care of those teachers. Deuteronomy is crystal clear, friends. God entrusts the responsibility of education to the sphere of the family. It is the father's responsibility, the mother's responsibility. It is not something that belongs to the sphere of the state. And so moms and dads, you are responsible when you delegate your child's education. You are responsible for every influence that enters into your child's lives. And one day, you and I will reap the fruit of what we've sown. You will reap what you sow. And so the point here is not that good parenting guarantees the salvation or the sanctification of your children, but the fact that God uses means to accomplish his ends. You know that? God's sovereign, but God still uses means. It's like, it's like uh, uh, Oliver Cromwell telling his troops to trust in God and keep your powder dry. Okay, This is how, how Christians are to view the sovereignty of God. Faithful parenting is a means by which God's elect are brought to salvation, trained in the Christian faith. Do you think that it's an accident? Do you think that it's a coincidence that many, if not most, of God's elect grow up in Christian homes? Is that a coincidence? It is not a coincidence. It is by design. In my own case, I attribute my salvation fully to the grace of God. But at the same time, I attribute the means of my conversion in part to the faithfulness of mom and dad who raised me in the context of a Christian home and who are courageous enough to decide, to discipline me when I sin and who showed me what it looks like to live as a Christian man, and who helped me to understand and to embrace a Christian worldview. And so when it came time for me to leave my parents' home, and I moved into a university dorm at the University of Guelph, and it was a den of iniquity, that's what it was. I went from fundamental Baptist, independent, fundamental, King James-only Baptist circles, to uh, the dorm at the University of Guelph. You talk about culture shock. Just a total den of iniquity. But mom and dad gave me a foundation upon which to stand. And upon which to make godly choices. And there's no, there's no question in my mind, there's no doubt in my mind that God used the faithfulness of mom and dad as a means of grace to bring their son to salvation. And to set my feet on the right trajectory. And I imagine many of us here who are are born again could, could testify to the same thing. And so moms and dads, let the example of David, other biblical figures, stand as a warning and a reminder. The most important task that God has given us in this life is to raise our children. If you're a parent, that is your most important task that God has given you. You're the evangelist of your home. You are the pastor dads of your home. You are the shepherd of your family before you are anything else. You get one shot at it. God is gracious. Okay? We all fail. I've failed many, many times. I've stumbled and failed. And I felt like a failure sometimes. God is gracious when we fail. But this is the most important thing the management of your family. The Christian family is extremely important to God. Biblically ordered homes are crucial to the growth and expansion of God's kingdom here on earth. In fact, God prioritizes the parenting responsibility so highly, we're told in 1 Timothy 2.4, an elder pastor in the church must be a man who manages his household well. In other words, King David would not have been qualified to be an elder in the church because he was not a good manager of his home. It's a very high standard that God puts. We were talking about this just this past week at our elders meeting. You know, Titus 1.6, that the children of elders and pastors are to be faithful, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And so if a man demonstrates through his own home and family life that he can't exercise appropriate discipline and management over his wife and children, and the children are wild, insubordinate, rebellious and wicked can we expect such a man to be an effective manager of the church of christ or of any other sphere of authority and while paul lays out the principle specifically for leaders in the church this principle applies more broadly in that whether or not you hold formal office in the local church you are still called to be a diligent manager of your home You are still called to be a diligent manager of your home. You must be a faithful discipler. You must be a faithful educator of your own children. That is our responsibility. Now David was negligent in the way that he raised his children because dad didn't send a good example at home. Dad did not lay the foundation upon which those boys could build their lives. David's son looked other places for wisdom. Dad left the vacuum at home, nature abhors a vacuum, and the vacuum will be filled. If you don't teach your children, somebody else will. If you don't instruct them, somebody else will be happy to do it. Last time we discovered from Deuteronomy 17, it was God's prerogative to choose the king of Israel, the people's choice, whether or not to consent to be ruled by God's chosen man. Here in verses 5 to 10, we see an ambitious young man. He is not being led in any fashion by the precepts of God's word and law. What is leading him? What, What is leading Adonijah? Where is he getting his information from? It's not from the Bible. He's just going along with the culture. He's just taking the lead on looking at the pattern that he sees all around him in the pagan nations. Well, that's the way they do it. That must be the way it's done. You know, it's the way it's always been done. So it must be the way it should be done. This is the attitude that he that he brings. This is not a, a man whose mind is focused on the Word of God. This is a man who is looking to the culture to set the tone for his life and his, his decisions. And he looks to the culture and the culture around him in the ancient Near East. It is the oldest son who is the king. It's the law of primogeniture. The oldest son is to be the king that's the accepted cultural pattern and Adonijah assumes it and so he says i'm entitled to this this role belongs to me because that's the way the nations do it and that's the way we should do it too i'm entitled to be the king and we're told in verse 6 that he looked the part here's a young man who's very handsome Perhaps a, a good-looking man with nice hair and fancy socks. You know, he looked the part. This is the kind of guy who, uh, who we want to be our representative. He'll look good on camera when he, he's in the UN. Years earlier, the prophet Samuel warned the nation, what happens when you look to ungodly nations to set the pattern instead of looking to the law, the law of the Lord? And now in Adonijah, Samuel's warning is, is coming to pass. Everything that Saul, Samuel warned him about is, is now coming to pass in this young man. This, friends, is still a danger for God's people today. That instead of looking to God's word for direction on how to order our lives, that we look to the culture. And I would think that probably most of us in this room, either consciously or unconsciously, do this a lot. We look to the culture for how to order our lives here on earth instead of looking to the Word of God. And so when it comes to the raising of children, instead of looking to the Bible for instruction, where do we look? Well, we've got psychologists for that. We have therapists for that. We have opinions of educated people on how we should do it. And if they change their mind, then we need to change our our style, you know? A hundred years ago, spare the rod, spoiled the child. Today, if you use the rod, you can be, uh, have your kids taken away. And when it comes to the church, instead of looking to the Bible for instruction, on how a, a church should be rightly ordered, where do we look? Well, let's look to the corporate world. And uh, so pastors love to read business books on corporate structures and leadership. We looked for the latest corporate strategy. The pastor is the CEO of the church. Or even worse, we look to the opinions of the non-believers out in the community. We take a poll. What do do the pagans want? Well, we must give them what they want and uh, pattern our church so that it will be acceptable to the pagans. And we wonder how we've ended up here in, in North America. So many shallow, theologically liberal, they call it progressive now, There's another word for it. It's called liberal. (laughs) Theologically liberal churches in North America. They have looked to the culture for their direction instead of looking to the word of God. And when it comes to the state and civil government, instead of looking to the precepts of God's law as the basic for civil authority, where do we look? Well, other nations do it this way. Well, they passed a law in Parliament last week that said we should do it this way. Instead of it, we look anywhere else except to God's Word. How should we do it? Well, we do it the way it's been done. That's the way it should be. Instead of looking to the precepts of God's law being governed by the Ten Commandments, we are instead tyrannized by the 10,000 opinions. And we think it's neutral. We think this is neutral and desirable. We'd rather be tyrannized by the 10,000 regulations and opinions of ungodly pagans than to submit ourselves to God's word and law. And so whether in the family, the church, the state, this is what happens when we depart from the precepts of the Bible. We end up looking to the popular wisdom of a depraved and fallen culture. And if our folly, our worldly Foolish strategies will not be supported by wise and godly men. What will we do? We will surround ourselves by a band of fools who tell us what we want to hear. That was Adonijah's problem. It is not God who chose and anoints Adonijah to be king. Adonijah chooses himself. Adonijah chooses himself. He doesn't believe in the sovereignty of God. He believes in the sovereignty of Adonijah. He chooses himself. And as the Lord said in Matthew twenty-three, twelve: those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Adonijah's arrogance is seen in the way he disregards God's law, the way he looks to the nations for directions on how a king should be. And it wasn't only Adonijah who is following the folly of the world and the culture. He has the support of some powerful men. Verse 7, it says, he confers with Joab, the son of Zariah, and Abiathar, the priest, and they follow Adonijah and help him. What's tragic here is that both of the men participating in Adonijah's treasonous power play, these are former friends of David. These are former supporters of the king. Joab is the commander of the army. This is We have a word for this. It's called a coup, right? A coup. He's, he's the commander of the army. He once held the confidence of the king, but he's fallen out of royal favor. Joab is a hot-headed, violent, murderous man. He will not let go of his political power. But even, even more shocking here is the mention of Abiathar. Abiathar the priest. This is a spiritual leader who was with David almost from the beginning. He's one of the sons of the, of the priest that was murdered by Saul. I mean, he's with David through thick and thin. And this is how he ends up. Who knows what the motive was, was Abiathar maybe he wants to be high priest. And he sees, well, now I've got an opportunity to, to be the high priest in the new administration. And so David is not acting as the king he ought to be, but he's still the anointed of God. These men should have known better than to challenge God and betray the king who is governing by consent. Conspiracy of Adonijah, the involvement of David's former friends, this is a reminder for all of us of the corrupting power of pride. One of the main themes in this chapter, the corrupting power of pride, pride and ambition can corrupt even the best of men. You understand that? Pride and corruption can corrupt any one of us in this room any one of us in this room. And the Bible over and over warns us of the sin of pride and tells us pride comes before the fall and a haughty spirit before destruction. You know, as Christians living in this fallen world, there are going to be many times when we are tempted to act unethically for our own personal gain. We will be in situations, we'll be tempted to take shortcuts, to sacrifice our integrity in a desire to climb the ladder and get the upper hand. And why is this? Well, the world is a a cutthroat place. This is a dog-eat-dog world. And sometimes it's very tempting to violate our conscience before the Lord or to engage in compromise that we know in our heart is wrong. And we do it anyway because we say, well, what else can I do? That's just the way it is. Even the disciples of Christ got caught up in this dangerous game they were arguing with one another about who was first in the kingdom who would get the best seats in the kingdom and jesus hears their arrogant bickering and he says "Do you know that the rulers of the gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them it shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant whoever would be first among you must be your slave even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How tragic it is in this chapter to see the corrupting power of pride in David's family, the lives of his former friends and associates. David knew what it was like to be betrayed. He knew what it was to be betrayed. He, he wrote psalms about it. His psalms cover the whole range of human emotion in my own ministry here at rosedale there have been a couple occasions where i've experienced the sting of betrayal it is a difficult thing to endure it is a difficult thing to be betrayed but it's encouraging to see in verse eight not everyone was not everyone was going to go along with this Verse 8, Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, Ray, David's mighty men, they were not with Adonijah. In times of apostasy, in times of spiritual compromise, God always preserves his remnant. There's always some that, that don't bow the knee to Baal. Now, I don't imagine that these men were always thrilled with the way that David was behaving in his old age, but they recognized the sovereignty of God in the matter of authority. They are willing to submit to the direction of God's word and law. And especially significant here is the name of the prophet Nathan. We know that Nathan is not a man who, who is uh, blown around by political power. Okay, this is a guy who calls a spade a spade. <laughs> He, he is willing to say the truth. You know who confronted David after he committed adultery at Bathsheba? Nathan. The same guy who's now on side with David. Okay, This guy is not a sycophant chasing after political position. This is a man of God. This is a man who has some integrity. This, by the way, is a reason why Adonijah leaves Nathan off the guest list. It wasn't an innocent omission <laughs> he doesn't want the man of god there and uh, he he has his own rival religion he's offering sacrifices he's pretending that he's got the blessing of god he won't even invite the man of god he, he doesn't invite the mighty men he doesn't invite solomon his own brother and so friends if there is any doubt that adonijah is acting ignorantly in this self-exaltation verse 10 clears it up His actions are in violation of the law of God. More than that, Adonijah knows that the Lord had chosen Solomon. He knows that he chose his younger brother to be the king. This wasn't a secret. You can read about this in in the book of 1 Chronicles 22. Solomon was the one who was named as David's successor. Adonijah knew that fact perfectly well, but he doesn't care. He doesn't care about that. He sees an opportunity to seize political power, to follow the ways of the nations. He's not going to let that pass by. Well, in this unfolding family and political drama, there's an aging king, an ambitious son. Thirdly, verses 11 to 27, there's an alarmed mother. In this series of unfolding events, it's the prophet Nathan who is first to catch wind of Adonijah's plan for revolution. He knows, as everyone did, Adonijah is not the one that God chose. Nathan was the man through whom God had delivered his covenant with David. Nathan had probably told David years earlier, Solomon is the one. Solomon is the one that God has chosen to be your successor. You can read about that again in 1 Chronicles 22. The Bible is clear. Solomon was the man. The problem was, Solomon was number 10 on the list. He was number 10. He was way, way down the pecking order underneath Adonijah. And it shows us that God is not following the agenda of the surrounding nations. He doesn't care what the other nations do. He doesn't care what they think. He doesn't care how they act. The selection of a king is not based on the wisdom of men or on the tradition of primogeniture. In the other nation, Solomon would not have had a chance. He wouldn't have even been considered for this role. In God's economy, he's the right man for the job. And so Nathan understands this. God chose Solomon. He goes to Solomon's mother to warn her about the impending danger to develop a plan to rescue the kingdom from this usurper. Now, had Adonijah been successful in his coup, do you know what would happen? what would he have done first? He would have gone and sharpened his sword and took, taken off his brother's head. Because that's what kings did in the ancient world. They eliminated all of their political rivals. Solomon and Bathsheba would have been the first ones to go. And so Nathan and Bathsheba developed this plan. They inform the king. They bring him up to speed. And what follows in verses 15 to 27 is this almost pathetic scene. Here is David, the king of Israel, totally clueless about what's going on in the kingdom and family. David is not faithfully fulfilling his duties. He's not ensuring what we would call today a a peaceful transition of power. David should have been the first man in Israel to know what was going on in the state, but he is the last man to know. And so now the responsibility falls on him for his wife and the prophet to inform him and to try to save the kingdom from civil war. Now in these verses, Bathsheba is almost reminiscent of Queen Esther later on. God raises Bathsheba up for such a time as this. And she courageously goes in before the king. Get this, the king who is snuggled in bed with his newest plaything. Can you imagine being Bathsheba? What a demeaning, humiliating experience. And on the heels of Bathsheba's alarm pleas for the king's protection and help, Nathan comes in the room, and in a very respectful and diplomatic manner, he reminds David, Solomon is the choice. David, it is your responsibility to ensure a transition of power. This is on you. You are the king of Israel. You have a responsibility to guard the nation and to protect your own family. Your wife Bathsheba, your son Solomon. And it brings us then to the fourth and final snapshot in the drama, the resolution of the crisis, setting the course for the next few chapters in the book of Kings. So we've seen an aging king, an ambitious son, an alarmed mother. Now, fourthly and finally, there is an anointed successor. Now, if David had been asleep at the wheel up to this point in the story, we now see a king who is suddenly woken up out of his spiritual slumber and he begins to take immediate action to make things right and so the first order of business is to reassure his alarmed wife to let her know he has not forgotten what the Lord said and uh, thankfully he says I have not changed my mind and I'm not going to be pushed around by my rebellious son and immediately after making this promise to Bathsheba David makes arrangements for the transition of power he calls Zadok and Nathan. He tells them, as the spiritual representatives, to anoint Solomon as an indication of god's choice, and then he puts the royal puts him on the royal donkey, the royal mule that was a uh, an animal of royalty in uh, the ancient world. that's why Jesus went into the the city riding on a donkey it's a royal animal. This is an announcement that God has chosen the king, and David has anointed the successor and as The prophet obeys David by anointing Solomon, indicating that he is God's choice for the nation. Notice, verse 39, the people give their consent. You're going to see this over and over again. God's choice and then the people's consent. The people consent. It says, Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. They blow the trumpet. The people said, here it is. Long live King Solomon and the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. And so these events come as good news to a nation in need of strong, decisive leadership, but for Adonijah and his band of rebels, the jig is up. This uh, party that Adonijah had stupidly organized in his own honor is interrupted by the sound of the coronation. And in verse 49, we're told this, all of the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose and each went his own way. How do you like to have friends like that? (laughs) We're all for you, Adonijah. And then they they get up after finishing their roast beef, prime rib dinner, and they run away like a bunch of cowards. And Adonijah is left all alone and he realizes in this terrifying moment of reckoning, He had underestimated dad. He had underestimated his aging father and he had overplayed his political hand. He had committed an act of treason. His fair-weather friends had abandoned him. Now he knows I am probably going to die for this. I am probably going to pay for this with my life. And so what does he do? Well, he immediately runs to the place of worship. Not yet the temple. It hadn't been built, but there was an altar of sacrifice there in the city, Adonijah runs to the altar. He seeks refuge in the place of worship, and he pleads clemency from his younger brother, who is now his king and his sovereign. The tables have turned, and although Solomon did not have to show clemency to this traitorous brother, we see that the the new king's first act as the king is to do what? It's a beautiful thing to show mercy. An act of mercy as Solomon's first act as the king. Although he could have rightfully rewarded his brother's villainy with a sword. The Bible tells us, friends, pride has consequences. If you allow pride to grow in your heart, it has consequences in this life and the life to come. The Bible says God humbles the proud and exalts the humble. Adonijah then stands out in the Bible not merely as a warning for kings, magistrates, and politicians. He is a warning for you and me. For every one of us in this room today, God does not put up forever with men and women who give glory to themselves instead of giving glory to Him. If you glorify yourself, and if you rob the Lord of His rightful glory, He will not put up with that forever. Pride corrupts the heart. Pride blinds the eyes to reality as it did to adonijah the wicked men who follow him in this manner adonijah stands in the bible as a picture of unregenerate men and women who refuse to submit to the kingship and authority of christ who is the true king adonijah is a picture of the non-believer In our text this morning, we see the utter contempt that Adonijah shows for his brother Solomon. Even though he knows that Solomon is chosen to be the king, he will not submit to God's ordained authority. And so he thumbs his nose at the Lord. On the one hand, Adonijah is utterly contemptuous towards God and towards the king. At the same time, we see here a man who is absolutely terrified. This is a picture of the believer, utterly content, unbeliever, utterly contemptuous and, and terrified. This terror that fills Adonijah's heart when he recognizes he is indeed a man under authority. Whether he likes it or not, he's a man under authority. And he's under the authority of this king who he is so deeply offended. This, brothers and sisters, is a sobering picture of the unbeliever and his arrogance towards the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a man or a woman. He or she has no respect for God's anointed one and treats the Lord Jesus with outright contempt, but at the same time is destined one day to bow the knee before him. you know that? That every single person that treats the Lord Jesus Christ and the word of God with contempt is a man under authority and a woman under authority. They will one day bow their knee. You can either bow it willingly today or you can un- you can bow it unwillingly at the end. You can bow it on your own initiative or it can be broken for you. But every knee will bow before Him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God of God the Fathers. This is a picture of the unbeliever hating God's appointed king, refusing to submit to Christ, even as he stands under the king's judgment and wrath. It's a scenario described for us in Psalm chapter 2 where the nations are raging and plotting in vain against the Lord and his anointed king, and they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want to be under God's authority. I will be king. But as the psalmist goes on to say, he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision, then he will speak in wrath and terrify them in fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill. When Adonijah was offered clemency by the true king of Israel, he wisely accepted it. He wisely accepted it, and he paid homage, it says, to Solomon. Now, unfortunately, this isn't the end of the story for Adonijah. <laughs> we'll have to wait till next time. But at this moment in time, he wisely receives mercy and pays homage to the Son. In the same way, the psalmist goes on, Psalm 2, to give counsel to treasonous, unregenerate rebels when it comes to the kingship and the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Kiss the Son! Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in in Him. If we read the historical account of treason this morning, if we come to realize by God's grace that we, like Adonijah, have committed the same sin against the Lord God who created us, that we are cosmic, treasonous rebels against the ultimate authority in this universe. And we have rejected God's appointed and anointed king. When, when we come to realize this, there is only one thing that can be done. There's only one, one right response to this. That as Adonijah ran to the altar to plead for mercy and grace, we must run to the cross and cling to the cross as our only hope of salvation. One day at the end of this present age, treasonous rebels will find a righteous judge and they will be cast into hell forever. But at the cross of Calvary, guilty and treasonous sinners will find a merciful Savior. This is the good news of the gospel. There is grace and mercy for treasonous sinners if you will come to the cross and you will cling to it. And you will say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The answer of the text before us today is a question that each one of us must answer before God. It's the question, who will be king? Who will be king? Will you exalt yourself as Adonijah did and come under wrath? Or will you submit to the Son and experience mercy, grace, and clemency? One day the door of grace will be forever closed. But today the door is open, and the invitation is for you. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Amen.